0: All right, good morning, everyone. I believe I see a note here, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think kids are dismissed to Children's Church at this point, too. Does that sound right? All right, all the parents are like, yes, yes, it is (laughs) time. Well, yeah, my name is Nate Peterson. It's been a while since my family and I have been here, but I'm joined this morning uh, with my wife, Jana, my two boys, Emmett and Jack. And uh, I'm grateful for Pastor Paul asking me to fill in for him this morning. I texted him just the other day after he had his procedure done, and, and he got back to me and he said everything went well, and he said, you know, I had to stick around a little longer because the, you know, the pain medication and things like that, that you have to, that you have to take for procedures like that, he said, it took a while to, to wear off. He said, the doctors told me I should never do drugs. And then immediately after, he sent me another text that said, the doctors tell me I should never do drugs with a smiley emoji face. And I was like, I wonder if that is still wearing off a little bit on you, Paul. But um, I'm thankful for Paul. Paul and I have known each other for a number of years now. um, And he's been a really great encouragement to me and a really great mentor to me. Just a little bit about me um, and get that out of the way. Because it's not about me but um right now i'm finishing up my last semester of uh, seminary studies and i'll graduate in may lord willing as long as i don't fail my one class that i have left Um, i'll graduate with a master's in theological studies and one of the requirements that we have uh, with our seminary is that we have a mentor who kind of walks alongside you during your journey in seminary and checks in on you um, emotionally and spiritually and really is there just to make sure you don't turn into this old, dry, crusty, grumpy, theologically minded person that, you know, really has a big brain but no heart kind of a thing. And, and Paul's been that for me. Paul's been one of those guys in my life that has a big brain and a big heart. And he's been a huge encouragement to me during this time. And so uh, I'm really grateful for Paul and for this church community and for the opportunity to be with you this morning. So I want to pray to start us off here, and then we'll, we'll get into the book of James. So, Lord, thank you so much for, for your word. We thank you for the body of Christ. We thank you for the church. We thank you that we have the ability to gather here. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless this time, that you would bless your word going out, Lord, that you would speak through me, that you would speak through your word, and that we would be blessed so that we can go be a blessing to others in this world, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, and so today we're going to be studying the book of James, and you guys have been in the book of James for a while. And this is a letter to the early churches that was sent out that's just full of encouragement, and it's full of solid theological truths from a man who most likely was the brother of Jesus. Historically speaking, uh, it's been held over the years that this James that wrote the book of James was one of the brothers of Jesus. And this is a book that I'm sure Paul has probably mentioned this already, but this is a book that over the years has kind of caused some debate within the church. Um, And I think unjustly it's had some debate. But at first glance, some of the things that you read in the book of James, people have said this kind of seems a little bit different than what we see in, for example, the books of Paul or the letters of Paul. They'll say, well, when you read Paul, you read grace, 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 and you read faith, faith, faith. But then you get into James and they'll say, well, James has a lot here about works and works and works. And so there's been kind of this debate over the years about does does Paul uh, and what he says, does that contradict what James is saying and what James is writing? And I think it's a little unfair uh, to say that Paul is all about grace, 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 and faith, 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 and has nothing to do with works, because as a matter of fact, every time Paul lays the foundation in any of his letters that we're saved by grace through faith, he has a section where it says, Therefore, this is what you should be doing in your life, this is how you should be living in your life. And James essentially does the same thing, he just does it in kind of a different way. And so, James is somebody who very likely understood the power of the grace. Of Jesus and that power that comes through faith, because if you remember, we're told by the Apostle John in his gospel that during the early days of Jesus' ministry, even his own brothers didn't believe in him. Jesus was saying all these things. They're like, Jesus, like, come inside, like, build a bench or something for a while, like, maybe chill on this whole Messiah stuff that you're doing. And so even Jesus' brothers, probably including James, didn't believe Jesus when he first started off in his ministry. And so like Paul, James had rejected the gospel earlier in his life, but we don't know how. We don't have the conversion story for James like we do with Paul. But eventually James gives in to this grace that God's pouring out on him. And Paul, like or and like Paul, James understands that while we are saved by grace, all right, there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. Once we get that salvation, there's this certain expectation on our lives to live as these believers, to live like we have this grace that's been given to us. Martin Luther is famous for saying, he's famous for a lot of things, but he's famous for saying this. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. All right, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. This is an interesting quote from a man who actually thought that the book of James was a lesser biblical text, he called it, because he thought it had too much about works in there, and, and Luther was a big faith and grace guy. But we see in the book of James, however, I think a balance. All right, We live in an increasingly polarized world. We're divided over political parties. We're divided over which state is best in the country. We're divided over football teams. right? We're divided over denominations. We're divided over theological viewpoints. And we kind of live in a country nowadays where we're told we, can't, we have to be one way or the other. And anyone who disagrees with us has to be our enemy. And we don't really believe what we believe if we're not out there actively attacking people that don't agree with us. And this kind of mentality leads us to the idea when we come to books like this that, well, it has to either be grace or it has to only be works. There's no way it can be both. Now, of course, like I said earlier, we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that works will ever save us. All right, they won't. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. However, The issue that James is dealing with here is not necessarily the issue of how are we saved, and then he says, you do these works. James is writing to people he's assuming are already saved, and this is how you need to live in light of that. James' concern is not necessarily how do we receive salvation, but his concern is how do we live in light of this salvation. And there are a lot of Christians in this world that can fall heavily on the grace of only end of the spectrum, right? They really fully understand and grasp that we're saved by grace and it's not anything that we can earn or deserve. <clears throat> but then the mentality is, because we've been given this grace so freely and our works don't save us, now I can just do whatever I want in my life, right? It doesn't matter how I live the rest of my life. Sure, I should try to be a decent human being. But at the end of the day, God is love and he forgives us. I mean, he's already forgiven me, so I can just go ahead and do whatever I want. And it's people at this end of the spectrum that a lot of times just instead of focusing on being a light in the world, focus on just fitting into the world. Things like theology and the defense of truth are looked at as outdated and boring and and just aspects of Christianity that need to get done away with. But on the other end of the spectrum, we got people that really focus on works. Sure, I've been saved by grace, but it's up to me now to stay that way kind of a thing, right? Like if I mess up, I have to make sure I drop to my knees and ask for forgiveness just in case some freak accident happens and I die. And now all of a sudden I'm outside of this grace because of the way that I messed up. And people on this end of the spectrum really appreciate things like theology and defending the truth, but almost a little too much. All right? It's not just that you must be <clears throat> saved by grace, but you have to understand proper theology, and you have to continue living almost this very boring, strict life in order to not become polluted by the world. And so from what I've learned in my you know, brief time here on this earth, is that a healthy relationship with the Lord lies somewhere in the middle of those two, not too heavy on one end or the other, but somewhere in the middle, and I think that's where James is at. I think when we see the theology of Paul and the theology of James coming together perfectly, I think we see that in the person of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus didn't just preach grace. Jesus lived grace. Jesus talked over and over about the love of the Father, yes, but then he lived a perfectly obedient life in response to the love of the Father. And so it's not that Paul and James contradict each other, it's not even that they're just strictly complementary with one of them, you know, balancing out the other with one talking about grace and the other talking about works. I think both Paul and James and all of the authors, really, for that matter, in the New Testament, they weave effortlessly in and out between faith and works and faith and works because they realize that they both work together in our lives. And so if we look at our passage today, we're just going to look at two short verses James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. It says this, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We'll take a look at that first phrase there. If anyone thinks... He is religious. <laughs> There's a common phrase out there in our Christian culture that goes a little something like this, and I'm sure we've all heard it at some point. It says, well, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And sometimes along with that sentiment kind of comes some hostility towards the idea of religion or the concept of our Christian walk being some kind of religion. And this is, this is a phrase that's become very popular in the last... Thirty or forty years, and the reason it's become so popular is because a lot of churches have looked around the world and looked at the culture and assessed, you know, the culture's uh, attitude towards religion. And they said, "Well, culture really doesn't like religion, so let's stop calling Christianity religion, all right? Because religion has left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, and oftentimes for good reason. And so, because of this, a lot of times we'll insist that well, Christianity isn't a religion. Christianity." Is a relationship. We don't want to look too religious. We don't want to look too boring. We don't want to look too, you know, focused on rules and regulations because, you know, that's how we have started to define religion as rules and uh, regulations. And this is a popular belief, but I actually, in the last couple of years, I've started to take a couple of issues with it. First of all. You can't be a tax exempt nonprofit relationship organization, right? Can't, that doesn't work. We're very religious when it comes to tax purposes, right? You can't, if an auditor comes along and they say, well, okay, I see here that you're a nonprofit religious organization, we're not gonna be like, no, 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 no. We're a nonprofit relationship organization. We're gonna have to pay taxes for that if that's the case. Secondly, there are plenty of other religious people around the world that stick to their beliefs, and even though religion might have a negative connotation in the culture around them, they remain religious regardless of what the culture is telling them. My wife and I spent some time in <clears throat> Istanbul years ago, and Istanbul has a good mix of, you know, what we would call religious and non-religious. People And the Muslims there who attend the local mosque, who say their prayers, who adhere to their religious laws, they absolutely consider themselves religious. And if you ask them, are you religious, they would say, yes, I am. They're not afraid to call it what it is, but oftentimes as Christians, we're afraid to do so. And I'll talk about why I think that is here in a minute. Because really, I think the issue with the term religious <clears throat> or religion is not so much the word itself, but it's how we've started to define that word in our lives, or really, more specifically, how we've allowed culture to define the word religion in our lives. Because James here is writing this letter, but this is actually the Holy Spirit writing this letter, right? This is God writing this letter, and he uses the term religion here, and it is not a negative thing. This isn't a bad thing, and we're going to see that here in the next verse how God actually defines religion, but James here correctly defines it. And that's why religion in its purest form, the way that it's supposed to be, is actually not a bad thing. Religion, the way that God defines religion, is not actually about rules and regulations. And so when we say to, you know, people, well, I'm not religious because religion is all about rules and regulation, we're actually misdefining or we're defining religion in the wrong way. Even the Oxford Dictionary defines religion like this. It says the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal god or gods, a particular system of faith and worship. Even that secular definition of religion doesn't have anything in it about rules and regulations. It says it's a system of faith and worship, or as James might put it, Faith and works. Faith and action. You know, we as Christians, we believe in uh, and we worship a superhuman controlling power. The amazing thing is that superhuman controlling power wants to have a relationship with us. And we worship him in faith by living out that obedient relationship with him. The word that James uses here in the Greek uh, for religion is threskos. And that word doesn't carry with it that negative connotation that our English word, religion, does. It's far from being something that suggests this heavy reliance upon rules and regulations. The word refers to this idea of worshiping God. That's what James means when he talks about religion. It reminds the reader of this idea of worshiping the Lord. And so another way that this could be phrased when, or when James says, if anyone thinks he is religious, we could almost interpret that if anyone thinks he worships God, if anyone thinks he lives a life that is worshiping towards God. And so true religion, James is going to define here in a second, but right off the bat in verse 26, we see that it actually has more to do with worshiping God. Yes, our actions are gonna be evidence of this relationship that we have with God and the things that we do are gonna come from that place, but it's out of worship. It's not out of having our arms twisted. It's not out of this fear that if I don't do this perfectly, I'm not gonna end up in heaven one day. But this is us responding in worship to God because of what he's done for us. And so James says, if anyone thinks he is religious, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. And so if anyone thinks they're living a life that is worshiping and pleasing to God, but they don't bridle their tongue, they are deceiving themselves here. They're deceiving their hearts. And this phrase is actually very similar to another apostle who wrote about a similar issue. And wouldn't you know it, it's the apostle that some people think is contradicting what James is writing here. It's the apostle Paul. Right, in First Corinthians, Paul says that if you claim to be a follower of Christ, but you don't have love and you're not speaking in love towards one another, if you're speaking out of contempt towards one another and you're not bridling your tongue, you're not controlling your tongue, then you're not living out a life that's in step with the fruit of the spirit and you are not living as Christians should be living. And so Paul's theology, the things that Paul says, the way that Paul says we're supposed to be living lines up perfectly with James here. And if we need any further proof that what James is writing here lines up with the theology of the rest of the New Testament, Jesus says the exact same thing. If you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, you're supposed to settle that before you bring your offering. Jesus, Paul, and James are all on the same page here. None of these writers here or none of these people in the New Testament are ever saying that works save you, but they're saying these works need to be something that's in your life. There needs to be some fruit in your life. I'm working through right now a uh, a biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like in between all the other books and things that I'm reading, you know, for school. But one of the things that, uh, or one of the books that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, which I'm sure some of us in here have read, is, is a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And Bonhoeffer was eventually executed by Nazis during World War II. And he wrote a lot, Bonhoeffer did, about how we are supposed to be living in light of the grace that we've been given. And he says that if there are believers out there that are not living like this, he says we're exhibiting what he called cheap grace. We have this grace from God. We've been saved, and we know that one day you know, we'll go to heaven, and yet if we're not living like that here on this earth, he calls that cheap grace. And our words, specifically the way that we talk to each other, are a good indication of the level of maturity that her faith has reached. This echoes what James teaches, or what Bonhoeffer wrote about cheap grace, echoes what James teaches here in this passage when he says that this type of faith is worthless. The word here, again, in the Greek that James uses has more to do with something that is devoid of, of purpose, It's without truth or result. Another word for that is barren. It's not bearing any fruit. And James actually uses that word again later on in this book. And so if we're not bridling our tongues, if we're not speaking in love towards one another, then James is saying we need to take a real serious heart check. And so bridling our tongues, controlling our words, is what's in focus here. Because just like Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And of course, we're well aware in today's world and our culture today that our voices stretch much further nowadays than our vo- their voices did back then, right? Our voices stretch a lot further than just one-on-one conversations anymore. Social media and the internet has given us the ability to speak to thousands, if not millions of people in the blink of an eye or the sending Of a tweet. And so, how much more important is it nowadays that we as Christians guard what we say, not only to each other, but what we say to the world? And so, to bridle our tongues or to bridle our social media posts does not mean that we stop talking altogether and just resort to silence. All right, James uses the example of bridling. When you bridle a horse, you don't do it just so that they stay in the barn, all right? You bridle a horse so that they can go out and they can do what they are supposed to do, but they don't get off track, right? So we're not supposed to be silent, but we're supposed to be salt and light in this world. We're supposed to speak out into the world, but we need to do so in a self-controlled and edifying way. And so this can be as simple as stopping for a moment and just thinking about what I'm about to say or thinking about what I'm about to type or what I'm about to post, What is this really saying to people? What is this really communicating is valuable to me? Am I communicating things of faith and hope and love, or am I just communicating maybe my very strong opinion about something? See, one of the downsides of our social media-driven world nowadays is the fact that there's oftentimes no outward consequences for what we say online. You know, somebody might unfollow us or something like that, or, you know, put a thumbs down on Facebook or something, you know, or they can comment about it or whatever. But really the words that we speak online, we need to understand have a more permanent sort of existence than the ones that we speak out into the air. And so we might feel very strongly about a certain cultural or political opinion, and then we'll post that. And then six months later, Those words are still there. It's like they're just hanging in the air, right? They're still there. They're cemented in the internet, and those words might still be there, and we might realize six months, a year, five years later, man, I I don't know that I feel so strongly about that, or maybe I shouldn't have said that, but it's too late. Those words are out there, and somebody along the line who knows you're a believer might read that, and all of a sudden, they've got a negative impact on their view of you or the Christian faith. And so in short, there's a lot of battles that Christians nowadays are waging on the internet that it might just be best left to let the internet fight that out. Social media, just like our words, is, it's like fire, right? Fire can make eggs in the morning, or fire can burn your house down. It just all depends on how we use them. So we need to have our words bridle. We need to be in control of what we're saying. And then verse 27 James goes on to define religion here, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, right? And again, like we said, religion has kind of got some sort of a, uh, a bad rap over the years. But I think the reason that we as Christians have such a bad taste in our mouths when it comes to religion is because we're allowing, like I said, we're allowing the world to define religion, and the world is saying religion is bad, and as Christians, a lot of times we're like, okay, you're right, you're right, religion's awful, we'll throw it out, and we'll, we'll change everything. And as we've already talked about, if, if you are talking about religion in the sense that the world defines religion, you're right, religion is not a good thing if we would let the world define it, all right? The religion, as the world regards it, is responsible for thousands of, if not millions of deaths over the years, bloodshed, prejudice, racism, genocide, it's taken place over the centuries, all in the name of religion, but it's a false religion. And so it's no wonder that the word religion leaves a bad taste in most people's mouths, but instead of throwing religion out altogether, I think we are called as Christians to redefine religion and define it as the Bible defines it. I mean, that's Almost every aspect, I mean all aspects of our lives, when we are saved, when we become Christians, when we accept Christ into our lives, it's not like he brings us up into heaven immediately and is like, okay, get out of there, like you're done, you did it, you've won. God leaves us here on this earth in our human bodies to continue to change the world around us, not to throw it out, not to just be rid of it, not to just cast it aside, but to bring that transforming power into every aspect of our lives, including this word, religion because when james talks about religion here he's not talking about the world's religions he's talking about pure religion and this pure religion isn't a curse it's a blessing from god religion that is pure and undefiled before god the father is this first of all he says here we've got two points that paul or that james makes first point is to visit orphans and widows In their affliction. Right? Of all the things that God could put here, this is what He says: to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. And really, this shouldn't surprise us if we've read our Bibles and we're aware of the heart that God has for people like this. He doesn't say that it looks like going to church. He doesn't say that pure religion is about following these rules or anything like that. He says pure religion is about visiting orphans and widows. In their affliction, that word in is an important word, all right? In their affliction. It's not visiting widows and orphans from a separated place where we're like, you know, shouting, you know, blessings and prayers to them or, you know, even, I mean, as great as those things are or just sending money from afar or something like that, as great of a blessing as all those things are. It says visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. That means we are joining with those widows and orphans in their affliction. We're down in the dirt and the mud and the hardship and the pain that these people are going through. We're joining with them in that affliction. Like I said, this shouldn't surprise us. Do you know that the first time that we get an actual specific name for God in the Old Testament, it's a woman and her child who are in distress? And she's a pagan woman at that. All, right? all throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as God, but it's just this generic, and a lot, a lot of times it's just this generic Hebrew word for God, which is just El. All right, El. But it's when we get these specific names for God that we really start to understand who He is and how He was set apart from all these other false gods in the Old Testament. And so, the first time we hear one of God's specific names is with Hagar. When she's running away from Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis. We've got Abraham and we've got Sarah. The two people that God has chosen to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. And instead, Abraham, in this genius move, gets his hand servant, Hagar, pregnant. I was being sarcastic when I said genius, just (laughs) to be safe. All right, gets her pregnant. And then Hagar is treated so poorly by her master, Sarah, that she runs away into the desert. Imagine how badly you must be treated if running away into the desert is a better option for you. So Hagar runs away into the desert. The people of God, Abraham and Sarah, those called to bless the nations, end up essentially being a death sentence to Hagar. You don't run into the desert to live. You run into the desert To die, and at this point, Hagar is carrying this young baby inside of her. And now Hagar hasn't died, but in this situ or her Hagar's husband hasn't died, but in this situation, she's as good as a widow. And of course, her son Ishmael, who's inside or is growing inside of her, you know, he's as good as an orphan in this situation. And it's in the wilderness that Hagar runs to, when everyone else has turned their backs on her and her unborn child, God shows up and takes care of her. And in Genesis 16, 13, she says, you are the God who sees me. You're not just a God. You're not just L. You know, you're not just God with a lowercase g. It says, you are the God who sees me, which means none of these other gods that I've heard about see me. In fact, these people that I've been living with, it's like they don't even see me. They've just cast me out. But you are the God who sees me. And so when God here, through James, says that pure religion is being with the widows and the orphans in their affliction, it shows just so true to God's nature all throughout the Bible that God is the God who sees people who are hurting and broken. When no one else cared and no one else saw Hagar, she was seen and she was known and she was cared for by God. And so when James says widows and orphans, I think it's safe to say that what he's talking about is the outcasts of society, all right? We're not saying that as Christians we only exclusively minister to widows and orphans and everyone else, we, you know, we forget about them. But what James is saying is the outcasts of society, the people who go unseen in our society, And I think it's unfortunate because a lot of times, as Christians in the West or in America, we can get so caught up sometimes in in defending certain things or defending political stances or defending certain ideas that we can forget that caught up in the middle of a lot of these debates are human beings that are being cast aside like garbage in our society. Because the fact of the matter is, most women they either consider or go through with an abortion, are not doing so because they're monsters, all right? A lot of these women say that they're pro-choice, but they're stuck in a place where they don't have another choice, or they feel like they don't have another choice. And we can shout at them all day long, and we can convince them online that their decision is wrong. But at the end of the day, we miss that that person is a human being who's lost, afraid, and very often in these situations, very, very, very much alone. So we have to ask ourselves, does God still see this person? Even if they go through with this decision, does God still see this person, or is he done with them? Or are they in a wilderness where they've been cast out and they need to understand that God sees them and loves them? A lot of refugees that come into our nation are not here because they wanna murder Americans. They're not here because they just want free money. In fact, most of them that I've met are some of the hardest working people that I've ever met in my life doing jobs that most people don't wanna work, working multiple jobs. They're not here just to get a free ride. They're here because they wanna get their family out of a dangerous situation. And a lot of refugees that come to our country are widows and orphans, but a lot of times it's easy to get caught up in debates about, immigration policies and border control and things like that, and I'm not here to give any sort of input on that because I'm not a politician. Now, of course, we need to be wise in how we deal with these things, but the interesting thing is James does not say, visit orphans and widows in their affliction, take care of people who are in need, as long as you're sure they're not bad people. But James says to visit The widows and the orphans in their affliction. Be there with people when they're hurting and when they're in pain. And so it's interesting here, James, again, just in this perfect balance, says we need to visit the widows and the orphans in their affliction. We need to be in the dirt. We need to be in the world. We need to be here as lights. But then he also says you also need to keep yourself unstained from the world. So you need to be in the world but understand that you are not of this world, right? It's that that tension that we live in as believers, all right? In this world, with the people of this world, helping them, being there, being that light, but making sure that we're not being stained by the world. Okay, again, James is interested in action. It's not enough for us to just do good deeds, but we need to do so as people who are lights in this world, not just exactly the same as this world. We need both. We need to be in the world and not of it. There are plenty of people in this world who do either one of the, or one or the other, right? There are a lot of celebrities. There are a lot of secular organizations out there who are taking care of widows, who are taking care of orphans. They're giving money and resources and care and housing to the sick and to the poor, and that's amazing. Those are great things. However, the difference is this. Although it can appear to have the appearance of religion, it's not pure religion, Because a lot of people that do these things, if they're doing them outside of the love of God, they're doing it for selfish reasons. They're doing it for tax breaks, right? They're doing it to maintain a good public face or to cover up something else that they've done that's corrupt. Or maybe possibly to buy their way into heaven if they think they're doing enough good deeds. And so these are people who are doing good things, but it's not with the right heart. And James is saying that's not pure religion. On the flip side... There are plenty of Christians who have done a great job of keeping ourselves unstained from the world, but we can often confuse the term unstained with uninvolved. A lot of times as Christians, we spend time separating ourselves from the world and insulating ourselves in these neat, tidy bubbles where we don't have to worry about any scary or evil interactions with the world, and we just hide away from what's out there. And this, too, might have the appearance of religion, but it's not Pure religion, because pure religion requires us to be out in the world and actively loving the people that are out there. And so what I think we see in James and all throughout the Bible is that the Christian life requires us to use our head, our heart, and our hands. And I'm sure many of you in here have heard that term before, the head, the heart, and the hands. All right? We see that even just in these two verses today. James calls us to use our heads. All right? James is a theological guy. James thinks about these things. We have to accept that pure, true religion is something that God gives us as a blessing. We can't just be content to go along with little catchphrases without actually thinking about what those phrases are saying or considering whether or not what we're believing is actually backed up by Scripture. James is also saying we're not allowed to just go and claim only grace, 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 or faith, 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 and everything, and then just live like the world and have no difference and not work out our fear, or not work out our salvation in fear and trembling. But we also can't just claim works, works, worse, and have no grace in our lives to understand that sometimes we fall short of what God's called us to be. And we always need His grace every day to continue doing the best we can to represent Him. However, we can't get so caught up in this theological headspace that we have no compassion in our hearts for the people around us, both believers and non-believers. And as I finish up in the next couple of months here, my current seminary journey, I've realized that it's been so easy for me over the years to be so cerebral with my faith. I'm a thinker. I think things through. I like to think and it's so easy to get in that spot where all my faith consists of is what I can think about and what I can define or what I can write about in my papers. I mean, the challenge in theological studies is to understand as much about God as you possibly can. But a lot of times that can cause me, you know, as i preaching myself here, that can cause me to retreat into my mind and forget about the heart aspect of my faith. And simply put, there are just aspects of my faith and your faith that we will never understand in our head, all right? I had a whole semester where we had to read like all the, a lot of the ancient church fathers and ancient writers and thinkers as they tried to figure out the, the Trinity, all right? And I don't think I'm any closer to understanding how it works at this point, and I don't think they were either, all right? There's just certain aspects that I'm not gonna understand in my head, but it's gonna resonate through faith in my heart, so the truths of God that we're studying, that we're memorizing, that we're getting into our heads, they need to soften our hearts and they need to form us in love so that we can be loving examples of Christ's love to the world. I recall uh, a number of months ago, I was going through a, a pretty difficult time in life and, and going through some things. And at the, kind of at the peak of it, I remember I visited a handful of my, my kind of go-to theology websites all right, and these are websites that have blogs and research articles and all kinds of resources for, for those of us who are theologically inclined. And, and I've gone to these, re, are these websites countless times over the last couple of years as a student, and I've been there to look up dozens of articles on any theological topic I could think of. Right. If I want to know all the different views of the end times, I could find page after page after page. If I wanted to study about the different theories of, of atonement, you know, I could get page after page an article and article after article. And all these heroes, all these theological heroes that I had that wrote all of these things, I respected them so much and still do, but I remember I was in this moment where I was having more of a crisis of the heart and not so much my mind. And I looked for answers, and I looked for guidance on these websites, and I found absolutely nothing on these websites for what I was going through. And I checked site after site after site, and I found all these great theological articles, which is still great, but there wasn't anything there for what I was going through at the time. And so, as then, that, that question hit me what good is learning all of these truths about God if I can't use it to help people who are hurting and in need? And so, these truths that we learn, we need these things to penetrate our hearts so that we then can speak those truths into other people's lives. As human beings, we're connected by pain in this world. Right? We are fallen, we're living in a fallen world that's out to hurt us and destroy us. None of us in this room or in this world are above the pain that life brings. But there's this odd sort of unification in our broken hearts. And so we need to understand that these godly truths are not just things that we use to stuff our brains with so that we can win theological arguments with other Christians, but this is the very truth that heals our broken hearts and the hearts of those that we share those truths with. And so finally, when we understand in our minds and when we have our hearts transformed, as James is showing here, we can't help but use our hands to help those around us. We begin to no longer look at people as just foreigners or outcasts. We no longer define people based on their religion or their heritage or their skin color or their political affiliations. We start to see people as fellow human beings created in the image of God, broken and hurting like we were and like we still are sometimes. But we were saved by a loving and a miraculous God, and none of that was our own doing. We are no better than anyone else. That love that we've been transformed by has to have an effect on the way that we live our lives towards others. As Luther said, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. If you are only thinking about theological truths and they have no impact on your heart or your life, I think James is asking you to truly question whether or not you've really surrendered your heart unto Christ. If you have, or you claim to have this great, grand spiritual relationship with Christ, and yet your heart does not break for the people of this world that are going through what they're going through, especially right now in the world. If your heart doesn't break for that, I think James is saying, I think you need to take a real serious look at your heart. It's not just a religion of the head, all right? It's not just intellectualism. It's not just a religion of the heart, not just emotionalism. And it's not just a religion of the hands, all right? It's not a works-based religion. But I think it's when we find that hallowed ground where all three of those things meet together, And where that example of faith and works that Jesus displayed on this earth comes together for us, that's when we really experience this beautiful relationship with Jesus in this life. And so, Lord, we thank you for what you've written here for us. And Jesus, we're thankful that you came and you lived this out as an example for us in your life. Lord, the word says that there's nothing that you ask us to do that you never faced here on this earth and you lived out that perfect example of faith and works, and you cared for those that were in the dirt, you cared for those that were outcasts, you cared for those that were rejected by the rest of society. Lord, it's so amazing to see that when you talk about pure religion, the first people that you mention here are widows and orphans, the outcasts, those that the world has rejected. So, Lord, I pray that we would just always live in remembrance of you and in remembrance of what you've done for us, this remembrance that we never deserved or did anything to earn the love that you give us, but you gave it to us freely. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to give it to others freely in light of that. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.